0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, you remember back in the day when we did that pair of episodes about urban evolution, mm-hmm. uh, about how certain animals and plants were adapting to the ways that humans are changing the landscape on the surface of the earth, changing it to build cities, to build suburbs and all that. And and along with all this change in the landscape come new uh, ec- ecological niches, new opportunities for uh, nutrition. New ways of surviving, new new incentives and disincentives, and along with that, you get this whole new brand of evolution. It's the kinds of creatures that evolve to live in environments that we've created. Now, of course, it's easy to think about ways that that might uh, happen in in cities on land, but. You can also think about the fact that sometimes people refer to like aircraft carriers and large uh, naval vessels as a city at sea. So that starts to maybe make you wonder, is the same thing happening with our large watercraft? Are we creating sort of urban marine environments in uh, in which all new types of evolutionary niches are created? This is a great
0: question, and this is a question we're going to dive into. Uh, in this, in, at one point, almost literally, right. Uh, <laughs> in this two-part exploration of stuff to blow your mind, the first episode here is going to focus on. Functional ships, ships at sea at large, and then we're going to uh, talk in the second episode about what very often happens to ships at sea. Uh, eventually, mm-hmm. uh, they wind up at the bottom of the sea, right? right. They wind up at shipwrecks, and in, in in either case, there are all these wonderful examples of how life adapts to this unnatural structure, this unnatural uh, floating—be it a, a floating, uh, you know, city, a floating, an aircraft carrier, or just a mere
1: dinghy. Blister in barnacles. Am I so excited to talk about this stuff today? Yes.
0: Now, I do want to throw in just a quick note. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the, the dire consequences of ships, uh, but we're not going to get into some of the particulars. Uh, some of these we've talked about on the show uh, concerning, say, uh, ship strikes and propeller injuries to, uh, to various uh, uh, organisms or sonic distress. Uh, that can occur just thanks to the sheer volume, uh, just uh, the noise created by all of these uh, large vessels uh, uh, at sea and some of the technologies
1: they utilize. So not so much the direct kinetic conflict between ships and wildlife, but more like the uh, the adaptations. Right. A look at the
0: non-human organisms that manage to thrive on ships, even though in some cases their, their, their ability to thrive manages to upset the balance of nature.
1: Now— if I were to start thinking about this topic not knowing anything else, the first organism that would come to my mind is the barnacle.
0: It, yes, the barnacle. Uh, the barnacle is irresistible because when you think of, of ships uh, and, you, and you try and focus in on organisms that are gaming this system, mm-hmm. the barnacle is just impossible to ignore. I'd say barnacle is also a top five funny-sounding word. Barnacle, yeah. It, it kind of sounds like yeah, it's got that that K sound that's always humorous uh-huh. in, uh, in in the English language, and then it starts with like a Barney sound. Um, <laughs> But as ridiculous as they sound uh, they can they, they, it gets pretty
1: serious at times well so I only think of barnacles as growing on ships but that can't be the only place they grow so what is the natural home of a barnacle
0: well you do have some species of barnacle that thrive in other situations such as uh, there's a particular variety of barnacle that is parasitic uh, to a particular species of crab hmm. that uh, that grows up uh, you know under its uh, its plating yikes yeah it's pretty pretty nasty I think this is the one that essentially like castrates the male crabs in uh, in its you know parasitic
1: manipulation. Oh, brutal! Yeah, but especially ironic given the size of barnacle genitalia.
0: Yeah, but uh, which we'll get to in a in a bit here. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, for the most part, when you're talking about barnacles, you're talking about uh, uh, barnacles that cling to rocks. And then along comes the hull of a ship, and it often presents a very rock-like uh, surface on which uh, it can attach. Yeah. Now the barnacle is a pretty interesting organism in its own right without even getting into the complexity of ships. They're uh, they're they're a sessile suspension feeder, but they have two active swimming larval stages. So the the, the final version, the, the you know the adult mature uh, barnacle is indeed that little crusty thing that's uh, that's living on the rock or on the hull of the ship. That's the full Voltron. That's the, the full Voltron. Yes, but there are two stages before that where they're free st- uh, free swimming. They're marine arthropods related to crabs and lobsters, and they begin life as uh, as these freshly hatched um, larvae, uh, free moving plankton like creatures. And then they develop through several molt stages into a, uh, a, a larva stage, which seeks out uh, a nice rock or a rock-like surface like the, the bottom of a ship to call home. Mm-hmm. It positions itself. It secretes cell, uh, shell platings around it, and then it just never moves. It depends on – if it's attaching to a rock, it's probably depending on, uh, on the tides, for instance, to bring food close enough for it to snatch up uh, with its grasping surrey. Siri. How do you
1: spell that? C I R R I. Siri. Nice. So so this is like the world's most lethargic full Voltron
0: <laughs> yeah I mean basically they just set up shop and they depend upon uh, uh, you know the, the cyclical nature of uh, of the waters to bring them what they need to eat and then they grab it
1: you know there are actually a lot of organisms like this in the ocean and we'll talk about a couple of other ones throughout uh, these episodes but uh, what the barnacle has in common with several other of these organisms is that like it has multiple stages of life including mm-hmm. a free moving stage of life and then later it settles down and becomes sessile or immobile and just stays in one place and sort of reaches out for food and mating opportunities.
0: So, I've read there are roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,220 different species of barnacle. Mm -hmm. And uh, among shore barnacles, their habitat comes down to not only region, but also shore level. So, you know, some are going to like different... uh, different levels of shade for instance oh. some cluster amid high energy shore waves you know where there's just a lot of circulation a lot of crashing uh, uh, waves while others actually attach so far upshore that waters only rise high enough uh, for them
1: to feed like a couple of times a month. Hmm. So you can already imagine that there might be some like costs and benefits to that kind of lifestyle. Like if you're in one of those high energy wave regions, I bet it's like that's really hard on you with the water hitting you all the time. But it probably also provides a lot more opportunities for food to reach you if stuff's coming in a lot.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, of course, the main barnacle topic of interest here today is the manner by which they attach to artificial structures. Um, they attach to wharfs, uh, uh, any kind of uh, you know, structure that we have built and placed in the water, but particularly, uh, they are infamous for attaching to the holes of ships. Now, this may come as no surprise to our more nautical listeners, anybody out there who has spent any amount of time at sea or has you know, served in uh in, in the Navy or whatnot. But barnacles are a huge problem for ships. Oh, yeah? And they have been a, been a problem for ships as long as we've had marine vessels. Ancient seafaring people had to contend with the accumulation of barnacles. And we do mean accumulation because we're not talking just a handful of organisms. Uh, we're talking in some cases tons of barnacles literal tons of barnacles and they don't just attach they grow into the surface uh, and form dense calcium deposits underneath the paint and the the technical name for this growth on ships is biofouling nice <laughs> which which is misleading right because I mean they're the, the barnacles just doing what it has evolved to do you you could make the argument I mean we're kind of biofouling and they're just biofouling as well everybody's biofouling
1: yeah. I mean if we're really tallying up biofouls we should have biofouled out as a species by now.
0: Oh yes. Yeah and I think I think that that becomes obvious uh, throughout these podcast episodes. So h- how did ancient people contend with barnacles? Well there there were two time tested uh, methods here. The first and the most popular option that is still practiced today is to just periodically dry dock a vessel, bring it up out of the water, and just scrape all the barnacles off the hull and then repaint it because, of course, the they're going to pull the paint away with them.
1: That sounds difficult.
0: Yes. Yeah, it's difficult. Uh, it it It's costly, especially with larger vessels, and mm. it, it takes your ship out of commission for a little bit, right? Now, another uh, uh, tactic that they had at their disposal some had that at their disposal anyway, it was to periodically dock your saltwater vessel in freshwater Hmm. so as to kill off some barnacles because barnacles are a marine species. You don't, they're not going to thrive in freshwater. Okay. So, but it depends on the species. Uh, Apparently it's four to six hours. That's enough freshwater to kill some species while others require upwards of 50 hours and there are apparently reports of ships retaining their barnacles after being docked in freshwater for something like 35 months. Okay. So it doesn't – it's not like you just bring it into the, uh, the freshwater and just watch them all fall off right. necessarily.
1: You've got a few tough guys in there.
0: Now, some stats about why barnacles are bad, just okay. to really just drive home like you know, why you don't want a, a ship's hole just encrusted with these things. Uh, and, and some of these stats come from an, uh, a really insightful um, but, of course, uh, kind of jovial April 1931 edition, uh, article in edition of Popular Mechanics.
1: Does it have puns?
0: Um, I think I'm going to do a few puns here and there. Okay. But, but th- these are mostly just the facts here. Uh, This article pointed out that 50 to 100 tons of barnacles may, may be removed from a single scraping from some larger vessels, while very large vessels may produce 200 to 300 tons of barnacles. So think about a ship carrying that much extra weight. Think about you yourself carrying that much extra weight or something more proportional to the human body around with you just in sheer, uh, you know, essentially parasite weight. So this could be like over a 100
1: cars worth of barnacles.
0: Yeah, that is crazy to think about. I mean, look at it this way. A really large vessel may have an acre or more of space for barnacles. If you just imagine it just folded out flat like Uh a field of barnacles.
1: The unsuccessful sequel to Field of Dreams. Yes.
0: And as you can imagine, this sort of accumulation can impact the effectiveness of of a vessel. Uh, It increases the the frictional resistance requiring from one-fifth to one-third more fuel to operate Hmm. and reducing speed by one-fourth to one-third of its optimal like debarnacled speed. And then on top of this, uh, especially by modern estimates, it can reduce the fuel economy of a vessel by up to 40 percent, and this increases CO2 emissions. Right. So, uh, yeah, there are all these additional effects that spill off from just having to Drag all these extra um, organisms around with you.
1: Now that you've been describing all this, the barnacle-based torture method idea starts to make a lot more sense.
0: Oh, you're talking about keelhauling.
1: Yeah, I don't know much about it. What? But I know it involves barnacles. So uh,
0: you know, we I feel like maybe we'd have to hand it off probably to like ridiculous history for them to do a you know a proper history of hauling because it's one of these things that is that, that that everyone pretty pretty much agreed was barbaric. But here's the basic idea: you take a Pirate or sailor, whoever's on board that you're displeased with. Wait, um, is this something pirates would do? There are accounts of pirates doing it, and mm. there are account. There are also accounts of, of it happening on naval vessels. Ooh, uh, but it, you know, it, it was long seen as just a barbaric thing that that was frowned upon in many uh, different naval traditions. But right. other places considered it a, a, a viable punishment. But the idea is that you would uh, you would rope somebody up, throw them over the front of the vessel. And then they would be dragged, banged under the hull, and then come up on the other
1: side, come up in the the, the back of the vessel. And, of course, that hull is covered in ye old barnacles. Yeah,
0: so all the the, the the shells scraping into your body, Ugh. lacerating you, on top of you just, you know, slamming into the hull of the ship. Uh, th- that alone could be enough to kill you. And then, of course, the, the, the drowning risk, the uh, the cold waters in many cases. So, yeah, it's a pre- pretty grotesque thing to do to somebody, uh, but it certainly becomes more grotesque when you consider acres of barnacles. That is awful. Now, we mentioned earlier ancient sailors dealing with the problem of barnacles and coming up with solutions. One particularly effective solution was copper.
1: Oh, copper. I mean, copper is a metal we had access to for a long time. Even before we had bronze, we had copper. Yeah. So you saw the the, the ancient Greeks
0: and the Romans, for instance, using copper nails uh, on the hull of their vessels. Uh, later in the 18th century, the British Navy sheathed its wooden holes in copper Um and, and Part to deal with the barnacles, but also to deal with shipworms, uh, which we'll we'll touch on later. Now you're probably wondering why copper? Why does copper yeah. work? You know, because just a, it's not that it's a metal uh, alone, because we have steel hulls that still become covered with barnacles. Well, the reason is because in the water, a toxic film forms on copper that repels barnacle larvae. Hmm. And this has uh, even been cited as a potential factor in the the superiority of the British Navy at the time. They had the the, the copper plated hulls, and so th- the, the ships were just that much more efficient than all of the competing vessels because they 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 had uh, just far fewer literal hangers on on the hulls.
1: Now, do you know if they were coated in copper specifically for this reason, intentionally, or was that just a happy accident?
0: No, it was it was to deal with barnacles and shipworms. Okay, yeah. yeah. But of course, the age of the wooden warship came to an end in favor of steel, Uh, and in this, you end up losing your copper advantage. Now you can use copper-laced paints, but these particles leach out, and in doing so, they end up hurting vulnerable organisms that aren't attaching to your hull, like salmon and oysters, Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile depleting the paint of its protective power, so you end up having to deal with the, the barnacles again anyway. Then there have been other poison-based methods as well. So lacing your whole paint with arsenic, mercury, strychnine, cyanide, tin, apparently pretty effective. Uh, But you end up with the same consequences, just killing sea life wherever the ship uh, goes because it's just raining down death.
1: Just poisoning the ocean.
0: Yeah. Apparently the the synthetic drug metatomidine has proven – uh, pretty effective. According to a 2011 article in Popular Science by Joshua Saul, the drug, quote, activates the octopamine receptors similar to adrenaline receptors in barnacle larvae, causing them to flee. So, in other words, it just like uh, cranks them up on uh, barnacle meth, and so that they can't <laughs> settle in. Uh, then they end up swimming off. It wears it when it wears off, but they 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 end up you know they don't affix themselves
1: to the hull. They're like Jason Statham in that movie.
0: Exactly. You're not gonna you're not gonna see Jason Statham uh, in those cranked movies like settle down anywhere. No, he's gonna be in constant motion. Uh, now some other solutions have also been presented, um, uh, many in recent years, such as the use of a robotic hull biomimetic underwater grooming system
1: or whole bug. <laughs> <laughs> so that'd be sort of like a remora fish for your for your shift they yeah just go along and clean a whole Roomba if you will. okay. <laughs> um,
0: there also have been new chemical approaches that depend on uh, in some cases you know on natural chemicals that have been found in, um, in other organisms. Uh, biomimetic approaches that are based on say shark skin or other uh, surfaces or structures. Uh, skin other skin inspired whole hydrogels and then there's been some uh, some research concerning bacterial solutions as well. Uh. but <laughs> barnacles remain a problem. Uh, they've they've performed exceedingly well and they continue to do so. Uh, some of the ships they grow on stick to a very small geographic area. Uh, some don't move at all, especially if they say, you know, sink to the bottom of the sea, as we'll get to in our second episode. But one interesting byproduct of all of this is that it's enabled barnacles to travel in ways that they never did in pre-modern or even pre-human time.
1: Well, yeah, especially in their, their later stages of life, barnacles are not light-footed. You know, they're not going to be hiking around unless they happen to end up on something that travels with them. Right. And then remember, you know, even though this is the end point, Barnacles do breed.
0: The the cycle of life is going to continue and it's going to continue with those uh, plankton-like
1: mobile larvae. And while we're on the subject of barnacle breeding, (laughs) if you've never looked up barnacle penises, that's worth a Google. Okay. Well, barnacle penises I think are just one – either the largest or one of the largest uh, like penis to body size ratio in in the entire uh, animal kingdom – Uh, Because obviously they can't like move around to find a mate. So they essentially have to reach to find (laughs) a mate. And so there is a very strong incentive to have a ridiculously long penis. And that is what uh, a lot of these little creatures have. So
0: they're not only clinging to your hull, feeding from your hull. They're also breeding on the hull of your ship. So uh, this scenario with the, you know, the ships uh, encrusted with barnacles and then the, the ships moving around, uh, uh, sometimes across uh, the, the surface of the globe – Uh, This has led to the spread of various invasive barnacle species, linking coastal ecosystems that would have never come into contact with with one another otherwise, threatening biodiversity in the process. And certainly barnacles are just one part of the problem. But even in 2008, according to uh, Assessing the Global Threat of Invasive Species to Marine Biodiversity by Molnar et al., published in Frontiers in Ecology and the Environment, as few as 16% of marine ecosystems were unaffected by invaders, and they stress that these figures might be off due just to underreporting.
1: Wow. I mean, previously, if you had asked me to think about uh, the invasive species threats caused by uh, o- ocean travel mm-hmm. on boats, I primarily would have thought of terrestrial animals stowing away in cargo holds or on boats and then getting moved from, say, one island to another. Yeah, I... Would not really have considered much the the marine ecosystems that are brought along by the parts of the boat that are underwater or maybe even filled with water, which we can get to in a bit. But before we do that, first of all, we're going to take a break.
0: Uh, and then we are going to discuss another very uh, notable, infamous ship-hopping organism. And this one resides inside the hull.
1: Yeah, a rascal with lungs.
0: All right, we're back. So – what do you think it is? What's the other big organism that comes to mind when you think about uh, about the ships at sea? Hyenas. <laughs> that would be good. I didn't run across any um, any particular mention of hyenas. Uh, no, it's no. got to be the rat, right? Yes, it has rat. to
1: be the rat. The rat, is, man. What's the most prominent religion with a rat god? Because I, I'm going to join that one. <laughs> I mean, rats are impressive. You just got to hand it to them. They they know what's up.
0: Uh, well, it, it does remind me that uh, that uh, Ganesha uh, has a has a rat as a vehicle, you know, and the rat does have uh, uh, have some importance uh, in different uh, corners of Hinduism. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the idea of a, of a rat as a vehicle, a thing that would uh, you know that would move you, uh, that would move the remover of obstacles, uh, that. Uh, that fits perfectly with what we know of the rat. Like the rat has gone everywhere that humans have gone. Uh-huh. It is our, our our furry secretive
1: shadow. I mean, after like microorganisms that live inside our bodies, is there anything more inherently linked to human civilization that we take with us everywhere we go to the extent of a rat?
0: I, I can't think of one, no. I mean, I guess maybe cockroaches are perhaps another example. Yeah. But in both cases, we're dealing with with animals that have been with us as long as we've had surplus food. (laughs) You know, as long as we've been growing enough to say, oh, I'll save this for later. The rats have been around. and uh, and so as long as we've been piling some of this surplus uh, 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 material into ships or boats, the rats have been willing to come on board and and find a place to hide if there is at all room for them.
1: Now I wonder what makes a rat decide to join the navy. Like not all rats do this. Some rats just hang out, but other ones they go into the boats and they are the ones that that settled the new rat frontiers. Do do we know what makes one decide to do that? Well, I mean it's the available food. It's it's just uh, – but we're going to get into like s- uh,
0: some slight differences here between uh, the brown rat and the black rat uh-huh. in, in, as far as its willingness to go to sea. Uh-huh. Now, I should also point out that in addition to always having uh, ship rats – We've also always had ship cats to deal with the problem. Mm. Uh, like even, even on like ancient Egyptian riverboats, the cats were there. Um, in, uh, in, in, if you go back into the, the Vikings had cats, for instance. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll have some examples later on of other you know, sort of menageries living aboard seagoing vessels. Um, but it's one of the it's, as with the cat and with the dog, you know, there's this mix of purpose and companionship. Like the cat is there, the cat is amusing, you have a little uh, antisocial. Ah, uh, but then it occasionally kills a rat or a mouse that would otherwise try and get into your provisions or your cargo.
1: Okay, a question just popped into my mind of interpretation of of some great mythology. Take the Noah's Ark story. Mm-hmm. Got to have two of every animal. I think there are <laughs> different versions where sometimes you got to have more of certain animals, right, but yeah. like uh, but yeah, so you got to have at least two of every animal, male and female. Do you do you bother packing two rats or do you just assume you're going to have at least a few hundred rats anyway so you don't Bother to like put put those on board. I like to imagine that uh, that
0: Noah asks uh, the Almighty this and says, "Hey, do I need to pack the rats and the mice?" And uh, God says uh, says, "No, nah, don't worry about those. They're self packing.
1: Right? If yeah. you build it, they will come.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're already there. <laughs> they're waiting on you.
1: <laughs> the field of barnacles. That that's the
0: the motto. So uh, when, we t- when we look at rat success stories, we're mainly talking here about the black rat, Rattus rattus, mm-hmm. aka the ship rat. And then there's uh, brown, the brown rat or uh, Rattus norvegicus. Now, these are just in general some of the most successful mammals on the planet, especially the brown rat, uh, which with few exceptions just lives wherever humans live. Um, And as such, uh, the story of human migration is the story of of rat migration to a large extent. Every island or new land that humans have brought ruin to, they've also brought rats. Uh, Rats who in turn have uh, decimated native species, outcompeting them for resources, introducing diseases, and preying on them, all depending on how a given organism fits into the black or brown rat's approach to life. Hmm. And sometimes the unfortunate natives that fall to these new rat uh, overlords are rodents species themselves. So we've touched, uh, touched on some of these uh, in our discussions of, uh, of Christmas Island.
1: Oh, yeah. Was the idea there that there was some native rat on Christmas Island that kept the uh, crab populations in check originally? Yeah, that's the hypothesis anyway. Yeah, and then there were like invasive rats that killed off those rats and then the crab population skyrocketed. Right. Yeah. That's potentially what's happening. So the, the, the first success
0: story though here was that of the black rat and the house mouse. They followed human agricultural expansion for thousands of years, but interestingly enough, the brown rat didn't leave its native abode in China and Mongolia till far more recently. Um, and so, this would be the difference uh, alluded to in uh, you know a, a, a rat's willingness to take to sea or take to the road. I was looking at a 2016 genomic study published in the Royal Society's Journal Proceedings B uh, that mapped the expansion of the brown rat using tissue samples from 314 rats from 76 global locations. Wow. So this was the first in-depth genetic study of brown rats from around the world and it was conducted by Fordham University. They followed uh, this uh, species movements, first of all, into Southeast Asia. And from there, I believe, they went uh, to they, they Japan and then Siberia. Mm-hmm. And then there was another movement that ends up going out across Eurasia via the Silk Road. And then once it gets uh, all the way to Europe, that's uh, that's where it really um, uh, sets off because here it is it's, it's perfectly lined up for the voyages of discovery and of course of course uh, colonization and exploitation. Uh, so from here they end up uh, go, uh, reaching the Americas, Africa, Australia, and untold uh, you know islands in between. And one key point here, according to the researchers, is that while the black rat is a natural expansionist following the path of grain and garbage through human history the brown rat is is, is usually normally you know it's normally happy just to hang out in a single location hmm. he's the bilbo baggins of of <laughs> rats you know he's not eager to travel and adventure at least not without some prodding um, but, of course, we know Bilbo does travel. He does adventure. Right. So, so the question then is, you know, what prodded him on? What prodded the uh, this particular species of rat on?
1: Elevensies?
0: <laughs> well, uh, basically, yeah. Uh, but, you, you know, again, the house mouse uh, originated in the Fertile Crescent. Black rats in India— So, you know, early farming societies and widespread trade, that's what pumped these rodents out uh, pretty early on. But the brown rat didn't really jump into high gear to the last three centuries, the most recent three centuries of human civilization. Oh, wow. Uh, Particularly the brown rats of Europe, again, who departed on these voyages uh, to, uh, uh, you know, to take North and South America, Africa and Australia. And uh, and in that the brown rat's expansion, expansion the uh, the authors argue here, is entirely human uh, uh, mediated. Uh, it, it's depending in, in, to a very large extent on the ships. Interestingly enough, the researchers didn't find evidence of a lot of rat immigrants, though, to New York City. They were looking at the the, the rat genome there.
1: But so many ships come there.
0: Yeah. Uh, so you, and and certainly the rats are still coming. But they pointed out that what appears to be happening is the New York City rats are just so entrenched. So well-fed and, and powerful and just so mean and territorial. They
1: can't be dethroned?
0: Exactly. They can't be beat. So they're actually protecting uh, their territory from new
1: incoming rats. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But lots of people who can make it elsewhere can't make it there. Right. And of course, this this would hold true um, uh, theoretically for
0: places beyond New York City. Essentially, like once the, the, the rats have entrenched themselves, once the brown rats have, have taken over an area, uh, mm-hmm. they're going to hold it. They're going to hold that fort because this is their, their sweet garbage empire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. I think we should take a quick break. But when we come back, we will talk about ballast water and bilge life.
0: All right. We're back. And in, in, in this portion of the, the podcast episode, we're really getting into a territory uh of ship life that is easy to overlook.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, you can imagine, of course, the first thing I would have thought of would be barnacles Mm -hmm. clinging to the hull. Then if you imagine things stowing away in a ship, obviously rats come to mind. But ship life by uh, by no means stops there. There is so much more ship life to talk about. Uh, And so I want to start with the question of – Have you ever seen what's on the underside of like a yacht or a sailboat? What's down there? It's not just like a sort of round bottom, right? What you will usually see is a big fin thing poking down into the water below the yacht or the sailboat. And this is known as the keel. I guess the same word that's referenced in the the horrible practice of keel hauling. Yes. Uh, and it can serve several functions. But one of the main functions of the keel is stability. It's there to keep the boat stable and upright. And it does this a couple of ways. So one is that if you imagine like – wind blowing really hard against the sail of a sailboat and it's sort of tipping the boat over to one side, the keel will be underwater pushing against the water and this helps uh, provide a counterbalancing resistance force that makes it harder to roll the boat. Just imagine like uh, empty out a, a plastic soda bottle and float it on the surface of the water and see how easy it is to roll that around on its side. It Obviously, it would be very easy, but if you tape a single fin to the bottle running lengthwise under the water, suddenly the fin hanging down in the water is going to make it a lot harder to roll the bottle around. The other advantage is that the keel helps give the boat a lower center of gravity. It pulls the center of the hull down, and that also helps resist any force that wants to roll the boat, or I think it's called healing, healing the boat over to the to the side. Now imagine that you've got a really big boat. You want like a cargo ship that can transfer a load of shipping containers across the ocean. Obviously, it needs to have a very big hull, uh, be very buoyant. So you might load it up with heavy cargo uh, to to take to your destination, and it sits down deep in the water because it's full, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you deliver the cargo. But once you deliver the cargo, if you don't fill back up immediately with more cargo, you're going to be traveling around with an empty or mostly empty hull. you're going to be riding high and dry. Exactly. So you might imagine, oh, my God, is that what that phrase comes <laughs> from? Well, I never knew that. I assumed, but uh, I, I, I actually have never looked it up. I mean, I assume you must be right. <laughs> Can't wait for the corrections if you're not. Uh, So, yeah. So, you might imagine that a ship in this situation faces a problem similar to a sailboat without a keel, right? It's buoyant. It's sitting high up in the water without enough mass deep in its hold to keep the center of gravity low and prevent it from rolling. So the answer to this problem is what's known as ballast. This is material that's taken into the ship's hull to provide stability. And if you're a giant metal tub sitting out in the ocean, a very convenient and accessible form of ballast is what? Water, obviously. So in ships that use ballast water, after they discharge cargo, they will fill tanks in the hull up with water for ballast and then pump the ballast water out when they load up their hull with new cargo. So they'll be going to one place, filling up with tens of thousands of tons of seawater, then going to another place Uh, and dumping it all out. Perhaps you can begin to imagine how this could go wrong.
0: Because it's not just seawater. It's not just – it's not like – pure water from your, your – your out of your Brita filter.
1: No, it's more like the stank water that comes out of your refrigerator filter, right? <laughs> do, you, do you have one of those? Does your refrigerator put out nasty water? Uh, it does
0: not put out any water, no. So I'd I, say I don't get to experience that.
1: More than half the people I know who have one of those things that puts out water, it puts out this water with an otherworldly <laughs> funk. I don't know what's going on there. It may be being drawn from the ocean. Uh, but yeah, so I, I want to talk about a, a few ways that this could really go wrong. Because, to in a large extent, it's kind of like a filter feeder. It's it's as if
0: it's as if a large whale yes. went to one corner yes. of the world sucked all this stuff in and instead of digesting it, just vomited it uh, somewhere else.
1: It's more like that uh, that ancient description of the kraken that we talked about, I think, in the Bathysphere episodes mm-hmm. that said that it's, uh, you know, this giant fish that it sucks in like millions of gallons of water. It's basically, it sucks in a whole ocean's worth of things and then just belches it all out after it has partially eaten it or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's just you're drawing in a lake basically. Yeah. Uh, so, he, here's here's one thing that happened. I want to talk about the jelly invasion. So, we will be looking at the carnivorous tenophore Nemeopsis laidi, also known as the sea walnut. Oh, that sounds delicious. It's I don't know. I haven't tried it. Uh, you know, I did forget to mention that there are varieties of
0: barnacle you can eat that are oh, consumed yeah? in, uh, for instance, Japanese and Spanish uh, customs.
1: So, the sea walnut, it's it's a species of comb jelly native to the east coast of the Americas. So, it goes sort of like along the east coast of North America, I think somewhere around New England, and then way all the way down to Argentina. It does not really look like a walnut to me. Uh, you can look it up. It, it's more like a – it's a small transparent comb jelly. It's usually just a few centimeters or a few inches long. It's got feeding tentacles. It's got these spiny combs running up and down the length of the body that glow with a faint bioluminescence when the jelly is disturbed. And so even though it is native to the uh, uh, to the eastern coast of the Americas, in the early 1980s, Nemeopsis appeared in the Black Sea. And it rapidly expanded to colonize the area. In the words of author T.A. Shiganova in a 1998 paper in Fisheries Oceanography, quote, The Black Sea was characterized until the mid-1970s as a highly productive ecosystem at all trophic levels, which by the 1990s had degraded to an ecosystem with low biodiversity dominated by a dead-end gelatinous food web. Oh. Now, that may be just technical terminology, but it sounds it sounds quite pejorative. So, the Black Sea's got this dead-end gelatinous food web now. And uh, to quote from a 2013 article in New Scientist by Fred Pierce, quote, at one point, its biomass reached a billion tons, Jeez. 10 times the world's annual fish landings. Uh, so, essentially, what had been a diverse and thriving habitat for marine life was turned into jelly hell – And fish populations were hit really hard, especially since the sea walnut, it it, it hurts them in two different ways. It preys on fish eggs and larvae directly, so it's eating up the fries. But also it preys on zooplankton, which is a food source for the fish.
0: Oh, so it's just – it's like a biological apocalypse scenario. It's like a, like a a green
1: goo scenario. Exactly right. So you've got this species of anchovy that was really hit hard. The Ingraulus uh, in and that, that was an important commercial fishery that was catastrophically affected, at least for a time in the 1990s. Uh, though we should also note that the sea walnut was not the only problem facing life in the Black Sea at the time. You got the other obvious culprits like uh, pollution, eutrophication, and so forth, lending a hand and really screwing up this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And given how we introduced this, it might not be hard to guess how the jellies from hell ended up colonizing the Black Sea. The most likely explanation is they were brought there by accident in the ballast water of merchant ships. So ships Somewhere that these jellies existed naturally filled up their ballast tanks. They went to the Black Sea to pick up some cargo. They discharged their ballast tanks and they spit a bunch of jellies out into the Black Sea that quickly took root, uh, reproduced fast and and colonized the entire thing and turned it into the dead-end gelatinous food web. Oh. Yeah, nobody wants that. We're basically in another blob scenario. <laughs> right. Yeah, so maybe maybe you you don't want to think about dead-end gelatinous food web. How about crab horror? Yes. Uh, so we, we've mentioned, I think, on the show before, the uh, invasive European green crab, the Car- Carquinus uh, maenus, which is an invasive species in North America thought to be spread by ships being carried across the ocean in ballast water.
0: Yeah, I believe we touched uh, at least briefly on uh, the fact that they're too small to eat. Uh, oh. But if you have the proper equipment and methods, you can kind of uh, process them down into a rather tasty broth. Uh, that, that's been one of the-, the Crab the, stock? Yeah, crab stock, yeah, essentially. Uh, this, is of course, has been one of the the solutions or attempted solutions to many an invasive species problem. Can we figure out a way for us to eat them? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we'll certainly come back to- uh, another invasive uh, species uh, for which we often try and, and roll out this this option. The rat. Well, man, the the rat is the rat is certainly showing up in even the finest of restaurants in the in the world, uh, but usually not on the plate. At least not while anybody's looking. Right. <laughs> but this isn't the only invasive crab.
1: Oh no, no, no. There are a bunch of other species. I, I think uh, we we may have also mentioned the Chinese mitten crab. It's been spread far outside its original range. It does often. not
0: look nearly as interesting as the name makes it sound.
1: Uh, it's got kind of like it's got kind of white claws maybe yeah, that a look a bad. little bit mitteny. But but not just like full-on mittens. You no, know? no, no. That would be cool, but uh but it's not like the boxing crab that has the pom-poms. Right.
0: Or it doesn't look like the the hoff crab, you know, the the, the hydrothermal vent lobster that had kind of kind of looks more like uh, it has mittens, at least to my eye.
1: No, I guess comparatively this is a relatively boring-looking crab, but it is a harmful invasive species and brought from one place to another by the discharge of ballast water probably. Now, there's also – there are even more tragic examples like cholera. So cholera is a diarrheal disease caused by infection with the bacterium Vibrio cholerae, and according to the CDC, there are an estimated 2.9 million cases of cholera infection, leading to approximately 95,000 deaths worldwide every year. Cholera is is a major public health menace. And it's spread primarily through the ingestion of unclean, unwashed food and unclean drinking water, especially, say, when sewage is allowed to commingle with water that's later used to drink or prepare food or or water crops or something like that. Uh, And it's widely believed by experts that cholera is spread by ballast water. I've seen ballast water cited by experts as an explanation for an epidemic of cholera in South America in the early 1990s that began in Peru uh, but spread to multiple countries and ended up killing thousands of people. Cholera is no joke and we should always be thinking about ways to stop it from spreading. But by taking in ballast water at one place and dumping it out somewhere else, you mm-hmm. risk spreading cholera from one point of the globe to another. And of course, it's cases like these that have, that have led to public campaigns to require all merchant ships to sterilize ballast water. This is a, a thing that would help prevent spreading harm harmful forms of ballast-dwelling life from one place to another, and there are plenty of ways to do this, right? You can have combinations of, like, filters just mm-hmm. on intake and outflow, irradiation, biocides, and all all that kind of stuff, everything you would expect.
0: Yeah, because especially when you, when you really think about the sheer number of uh, big cargo vessels out there on the seas, you know, we... You know, it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of, of thinking about, uh, you know, us living in this age that's defined by uh, by air travel. Mm-hmm. But but so many of our goods are are making their way around the world on these giant ships. Yes, absolutely. You, you use something that arrived by ship every day. Mm-hmm. Now there are plenty of other organisms we could chat about here. Um, the, the zebra mussel, for instance, shows up a lot mm-hmm. in these papers. One that uh, that I happened upon I mainly—I I looked it up because when I think of invasive aquatic species, I can't help but think of the lionfish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if you if you've ever looked at well salt water with fish in it, <laughs> I feel like there's a really good chance you've seen a lionfish. <laughs> Whoa because um uh, this is also known as the zebra fish that's confusing well lion zebra it's very if you look at one you can it the main thing you see is is that it has kind of a stripy ornate uh, pattern but also kind of a mane oh, kind you're of appearance right. you know yeah it's
1: got both so both it's ter- got the
0: liberty spikes yeah it looks, they look super stylish. Now, when we say lionfish, that's generally referring to several species of the genus Terois, Tiro- uh, but the most infamous member of the genus is the red lionfish, or Terois uh, volatons, a beautiful and really an almost delicate-looking reef fish from the Indo-Pacific that is anything but delicate. No, these the they may look like a living Christmas ornament, but they're <laughs> a spiny, venomous carnivore that has proven itself incredibly durable and has staked out invasive territory in warm waters around the world. Now you can find them, uh, um, you know, all up and down the Atlantic coast of uh, of North and South America, from Rhode Island to Brazil, uh, and uh, they have a host of enemies in their native waters that will gladly gobble them up. Uh, you know various sharks and whatnot, mm-hmm. but they have no natural enemies elsewhere. In fact, uh, some would-be predators uh, in these foreign waters they they, they they try to eat them, but they can't cope with the spines.
1: Right, they haven't co-evolved a defense. Right, so
0: you end up with just way too many lionfish hanging out. For instance. Um, Several years ago, uh, I went on a family trip to Jamaica mm-hmm. and we did a lot of snorkeling and it was just super cool getting to see all of these you know, natural denizens of this little coral reef that was uh, right off the, uh, off the, the coast there. Uh, it was really one of the most magical experiences uh, of my life. Uh, but at the same time, you'd reach these corners, you'd see, oh, well, here's a lionfish here and here's a lionfish there and they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it would be like, oh, here's half a dozen lionfish just hanging out together. And yes, it's beautiful orchidism. Uh, and, and that's why they've been very popular as aquarium uh, uh, specimens. But uh, when they are taken out of their native waters, they just take over. Now, why do, why do they wind up in these uh, native waters? Well, the most accepted theory backed up by sort of limited genetic diversity and in invasive populations is that they stem from aquarium species that were dumped into the Atlantic Ocean around southeast Florida. Uh, and from here, the currents distributed their egg masses and larvae far and wide. But uh, ballast waters can also help distribute larval uh, dispersion, uh, certainly within their adopted habitats. But some have argued that it could have played a role in their overall expansion as well. Um, again, don't be fooled by the glamorous look, though. These are uh, – the lionfish is a hardy little monster.
1: You're saying that they could, they could make it for a bit in a tank.
0: Yeah, there are, uh, there are at least anecdotal accounts of them surviving in bilge water, you know, just sort of the mucky water uh, in the very depths of a ship. Uh-huh. Over the last few decades, the world has experienced an, an exponential increase in documented marine invasions due to the, the global transport of invertebrates in ballast water, as we've been touching on. And lionfish populations in the Atlantic have increased as well. Though it's always worth noting that there's there's more pu- public awareness regarding the lionfish. There have been some some um, some big campaigns to encourage local uh, fishermen to. Uh, to catch lionfish, and then also uh, reminding them like here's how you can eat them. here are cooking, uh, here are, here are some preparation methods you can employ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm told that they're quite tasty. Uh, but then also the other part of this is that they do stand out more as well. Like when you see a lionfish uh, in its own habitat or in an in, you know an invasive situation, It really catches your attention because it is an eye-grabbing fish. It is a fish whose very body uh, is alerting you to its presence and saying, don't mess with me.
1: Robert, I'd say before this episode, ballast water regulation was not something I realized was worth caring about. Now I realize that is a very important issue for, uh, for world ecological preservation.
0: Absolutely. Now, some of you may be listening and, and wondering, well, just how many different species can pile up in the bilge waters of a ship? Oh, like the lionfish. Right. Or, uh, or its hull, uh, you know, clinging to the side or in the ballast. Uh, I looked at a, an article titled Marine Boating Habits and the Potential for the Spread of Invasive Species in the Gulf of St. Lawrence by Darbyson et al., February 2008 in uh, Aquatic Invasion Volume 4. And they were just looking at boats in the Atlantic's uh, Gulf of St. Lawrence in Canada. Okay, And they found that bilge water and hole scrapings from the vessels there contained uh, 31 and 47 taxa respectively. So that's uh, you know, 31 from bilge water, 47 from hole scrapings. And this included such invasives as the clubbed uh, tunicate and uh, the green crab.
1: All right, and to clarify, how is bilge water different from ballast water? That's not ballast water.
0: No, my understanding is that bilge water is uh, uh, kind of – it's more – it's not uh, it's not so much intentionally taken in. It's not part of this ballast system in these larger ships. Right. I
1: think it's more like what manages to leak into the ship and then gets pumped out later. Right,
0: yeah. So like older ships, like a clipper ship, mm. uh, my understanding would not have had a ballast system certainly like a modern ship does. But it would have had bilge water. nice. Now, of course, there are a whole host of invasive creatures that ventured along on ships because humans intentionally brought them along. Mm-hmm. We've already talked about the cat. Um, we mentioned in passing the dog. Uh, chickens uh, came with us as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, also even some, uh, some old world monkeys uh, came along for a ride. And this, uh, you know, the idea of, of old world monkeys uh, hanging out in, uh, in, in uh, on a ship, in the riggings of a, of a ship, uh, forced me to, to do a, a bit of a, a dive here looking into uh, uh, accounts of animals running wild, particularly uh, primates running wild on old ships. And uh, there's actually, there's an account from an 1890 edition of the Sydney Morning Herald that tells of the 1889 voyage of the Margaret, which set sail from South Africa for Boston, with a cargo of something around a uh, hundred cockatoos, a dozen snakes, two crocodiles, an orangutan, and a, a gorilla, and various monkeys and parrots. Wow! And this is this is a horrible story, <laughs> um, that that is just uh, just just full of terrible things happening. So first of all. There were rats on board as well, of course, and they ate all the provisions for the birds, and that doomed most of the birds to perish. Okay. Then bad weather um, released snakes and crocodiles who then battled with the rats. <laughs> At the end of this battle royale, you had one crocodile remaining, and then it was crushed by fallen cargo in another storm. And then the monkeys escaped into the ship's rigging. And the crew were only able to recapture four of them before uh, more stormy weather set in and swept the rest of the monkeys out to sea. Oh, no. Yeah, and so they perished. And then uh, the gorilla also got out and allegedly threatened sailors with a truncheon. (laughs) Um, This is a, a, a quote that's related in the BBC article of the incident from 2014. Quote, having obtained possession of an iron bar, he commanded all objects within 10 feet of where he was chained. Uh, reported uh, the the, uh, the Devizes and Wiltshire Gazette. With this formidable truncheon, he threatened to brain every sailor who came within range. The cook one day, unwarily approaching, heard the bar whistling through the air and ducked, but not in time to save his head, which was half scalped. Whoa. So, yeah, they ended up with just a chain gorilla throwing things around uh, within the ship, and they just had to put up with it until they got back.
1: Why is it hard for me to feel bad for the humans in this? Oh scenario? yeah,
0: I don't at all. I, I feel bad exclusively for the, for the animals in that story, but but it does partially answer my question about you know about whether monkeys could take up in the rigging of a ship and survive, say, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a transatlantic voyage uh, and set up somewhere else, you mm-hmm. know, purely on their their own, uh, without the the humans uh, enabling their journey. And I think the answer is, is generally they could not. The humans would have to help them because they would. Uh, there are a few cases like this where a monkey is swept out of the rigging uh, into the sea. Uh, I ran a car across several accounts uh, that were from an 1876 Harper's Weekly article by Lady Verney, a.k.a. Frances Verney, who lived 1819 through 1890. She mentions a vessel uh, uh, called the HMS Uryalus, and uh, she, she writes that there was a monkey— on the ship that had allegedly gotten into the the ship's rigging, and there was fear that it might wreck uh, the chronometer. And indeed, one day, the monkey crept into the room where they kept uh, the chronometer uh, and then carried it off into the rigging. <laughs> and the crew, especially like the, the master who was in charge of looking after this uh, instrument, they were just chasing after the monkey, trying to get it back, and finally the monkey throws it into the ocean before they can stop it. <laughs> nice. uh, she also writes of a monkey on another ship that reportedly— Uh, held up in the riggings till bad weather spilled it overboard and the sea was rough and the captain was just like, good, leave it there. But the crew had become so attached to the monkey. It was like, you know, their mascot at that point, they Uh insisted, no, we're, we're lowering a boat and we're going to save the monkey. Did they mutiny? (laughs) They, it kind of sounds like it. Yeah. They, they, so he's, he caves, he's like, all right, we'll go look for the monkey. They go down in the boat. They're looking around for it and then they look up and they see that the monkey has already reboarded the vessel and has climbed back into the rigging. Yes.
1: I want to high five that monkey.
0: (laughs) Uh, There's another account she writes of the monkey Jocko. Uh, who had earned its place aboard a particular ship and was known for jealously chucking a kitten overboard. Oh no! And despite uh, initial protest from uh, from from the dog, from a mother dog on the ship, uh, it nursed a, a, a litter of puppies as well. What? <laughs> uh, she shares this quote from uh, from one of the the crew members on this particular vessel. "Quote: Jocko was an abominable beast. I could not bear him." <laughs> He used to get drunk and play underhanded tricks. Still, he was not altogether bad. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. And, and th- yet there's one more. She mentions uh, without citing a particular ship, uh, an orangutan, quote, on board a king's ship returning from India with a governor general on board. Quote, a most genteel person that put on a flannel shawl every evening as soon as it became cold, crossing uh, it tidily across its chest like a lady. Uh, in this, it was copying the governor general's wife, uh, who was also on board. So, <laughs> so, I guess the orangutan was a you know a, a pretty laid back uh, uh, passenger on that voyage. Uh-huh. But anyway, just a few um, difficult to substantiate stories of primates on the high seas.
1: Well, those were a strange mix of
0: horrifying and delightful. (laughs) Yes, which I think kind of sums up uh, uh, human nautical adventures in general.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: I guess we're all primates on the waves. That's true. All right, Joe, I think it's time to go ahead and sink this ship, to go ahead and end this episode. To scuttle it. To to scuttle it so that in our next episode, we might discuss uh, sunken ships and uh, the habitats they create for uh, marine life forms. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all the episodes. You'll find links out uh, to our social media accounts. You'll find a tab for our store where you can get various shirt designs. Uh, Who knows? We might be able to spin some sort of cool shirt designs off of these episodes. And we didn't even get into squirrels, but of course we didn't even get into squirrels here, but of course uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin took one on the high seas with him.
1: Oh yeah, he took it to England uh, only to have it get Killed by a dog. Yep.
0: Good old Scug of course you can buy some shirts with squirrels on them in our store it's a great way to support the show and if you want to support our show without spending a dime just rate and review us wherever you get this podcast
1: hey of course if you haven't yet you should check out our other podcast Invention which is publishing every week on Monday seriously if you like this show you'll probably like that show you should give it a listen and subscribe that, that would be another way to help us out immensely but we think you'll love it and you'll be glad you did as for the show huge thanks as always to our excellent and audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison if you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback on this episode or any other uh, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello uh, send some friendly greetings you can email us at blowthemind at